0: You're a clappy bunch. I knew there'd be no stopping you after the bells. Uh, Cindy leaned over and said, "I just love the bells at Christmas." Thank, thank you, Sharon. It is uh, really—it was sweet. Uh, I tell you, I'm watching Randy swing for the fences on this end with that big bell of—I hope I never make the mistake of sneaking up behind him, as as he's you know know—he'll send me right across the chancel. So, well, welcome to Advent at Chapel Hill. For those of you who aren't as churchy, Advent is not just the extension of the shopping season. Advent is the four weeks that leads up to Christmas, and it is a season of preparation. Advent means coming, and, and in this season of coming, we are waiting. We are kind of leaning onto the edge of our pews and eager for the arrival of Christ. It reminds us of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years that the people waited for the long-promised Messiah to come, and He finally did. And so we wait for a while. Until he should come again. And then we will celebrate that hard to believe three weeks from now. We will be celebrating that. So this season of Advent in a season of prayer. We thought we would lean more into that waiting. Into the darkness before the dawn. Last Sunday then we talked about a prayer of the waiting. Remember King David Psalm 13, the howling prayer, how long, O God, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And I know that really resonated with many of us, probably all of us at some point, where we've waited and longed for the light to come. This morning, King David's going to teach us another prayer, another prayer in darkness, waiting for light, and this is the prayer of the abandoned, the prayer of the abandoned. I won't ask you to stick your hand up, it might be a little obvious, but I'd still like to ask this, if you've ever in your own life gone through a season of abandonment, would you just nod your head up and down? Yeah, a lot of you, I'll bet all of us in some way or the other, have experienced a sense of being forsaken, of dereliction, that's derelict building, it means abandoned building. I have a life group, as you know, I want all of you to have a life group, if you don't, get one. Uh... I have a life group, and we meet on Friday mornings, and one of the life group members, as we were talking about what we're going to be studying today, he made this pr- very profound statement. He said, there is no more powerful emotion than abandonment. And I, I kind of pressed in on him, and I asked if he really meant that. He did, and he followed up with a, an email to me about it later, in which he explained it just a, mo- a little bit more, and, and it would explain why he would say something really quite poignant like that. He said, my father left us four times over a period of 12 years. I would wake up in the morning and he would be gone, abandoned. My mother struggled emotionally and financially, and her coping mechanism was alcohol and pain medication. Although I saw her every day, I felt abandoned. During my junior year in college, she passed away, abandoned. And later, after 30 years of marriage, my wife left me and my kids, abandoned once again. You can understand why he might say something like that, can't you? I went through a, a season of abandonment. It's nothing like my friends, but it still was very real to me. I went to Scotland, as you know, to work on my PhD, and, a, and I was, there was a girlfriend who was there with me who went also. And... Um, And that first uh, Christmas in 1985, she returned home, came back to the United States. And I was devastated. I remember literally being the only person in my residence hall who was present, who was there. Everyone else had gone somewhere for the holidays, including the maids, the kitchen crew. I was literally the only one. And I remember sitting on Christmas Day in the common room by myself watching It's a Wonderful Life. (laughs) And thinking to myself, no, it is not. <laughs> I have never been more lonely. Of course, that was the darkness. The light is sitting over in the front pew for me, and I'm grateful for that. I've never been more lonely. No one knew abandonment more acutely, though, than the Lord Jesus. No one. When Jesus was on the cross, as he, uh, as the sin of the world came crushing down upon him, he screamed out what has come to be known to us as his cry of dereliction. That's what it's called in theological circles, the cry of dereliction, the cry of abandonment. And that familiar cry, which you will recognize because we've heard it in Eastertide, uh, uh, that cry is taken actually right from the very first verse of Psalm 22, the psalm that we are going to look at today. I'd urge you, sometimes you don't, but I I want you to open your Bibles or your devices up, and and I want to refer back and forth to this. I think this this is going to require a little more work on your part, but I discovered a rhythm to this psalm that I want you to experience as I experienced it, and so I hope you'll, again, buckle up your pew belts and work with me on this this morning. Uh, We're going to read this Psalm 22, uh, the first half of it. It is actually called the Psalm of the Cross. And if you've never heard it or if you've forgotten that it's there, you will be amazed at the vivid details of the crucifixion of Jesus that come to life in a psalm that was written a thousand years before Jesus was crucified. Think about that. And so uh, as I read this, uh, I want you, I'm going to pause in moments and there, there are going to be voices that are echoing through your, your ears because you're going to be hearing in there not the writings of King David a thousand years before Christ, but you're going to be hearing the, the, the echoes of the gospel account of the, the entire crucifixion of Jesus. So listen with amazement to the power of this prophetic piece of God's word, Psalm chapter 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Do you hear echoes of the cross? Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me. For trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Listen here, listen here. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, how miraculous you are to to cast a a picture of the crucifixion of our Savior a thousand years before it happened in such vivid detail. And Lord, we ask now that as we enter into your pain and abandonment, you will help us to understand how we might pray our way through ours and into a same hope of light and resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it is easy for us in the sweetness of this season... to forget that the baby whose birth we will celebrate in three weeks was born precisely to enter in to the pain of human existence. We, sep- we separate Easter and Christmas. We don't want really to have them touch each other, but this was a baby that was born to die. He came for the purpose of engaging our pain, our sin, our brokenness. And yes, those moments even when we feel abandoned, How is it that the baby in the cradle of Bethlehem would one day cry out to his Heavenly Father the words that we hear at the beginning of this psalm? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we listen to the the heartbroken cry of Jesus, the Son, eternal Son of God, hanging on the cross. But it is also the heartbroken cry a thousand years earlier of King David going through we-know-not-what that would cause him to feel so utterly desolate. And in fact, for many of us who nodded our heads and for others who didn't have the courage to do so, it is also our heartbroken cry when we feel desolate, abandoned, and forsaken. I was asking the Lord to help me figure out how to address this in, in, a, in a hope of praying our way out of forsakenness and into light for surely that's what we want to do and one of the things I noticed is this kind of up and down motion of the psalm it is depths and then up heights it is depths and and heights it is like a roller coaster and so I want us to pray our way through this and I and I want to find a way in in the psalm to help us experience our own times of lament with hope Okay, so the word that we're going to use to guide us through this is the word "remember." Would you say that? An enormously important word in the Bible. The Old Testament is full of it because they forgot all the time, and we need to remember as well. And I think this Psalm teaches us to remember. So the first thing the Psalm teaches us to remember is God's faithfulness to others. Would you say that? God's faithfulness. As you, as you see, the psalm opens with this painful, plaintive lament, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as I said, imagine this is a roller coaster in these first, uh, these first verses. The first two verses are headed straight down it's just a, a sense of abandonment there is a, a he is grabbed, gripped by pain he is crying out by day and night you hear his insomnia he cannot sleep he he cannot get answers that he wants and and finally we reach a point where he just can't go any farther down and we reach the bottom and start back up with this wonderful little word yet say yet yes. it's a good word It's a good word in this psalm particularly. Here we read verse 3. Take a look. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So we hear David crying out in despair and dereliction. And yet he remembers. What does he remember? He remembers that God was at least faithful to others. He, he's not at a point where he can remember God's faithfulness to him in his own life. You understand that? And we've reached that. Some of us have reached that point where no matter what's going on, it all seems dark and bleak and hopeless. And I'm watching people nodding their heads up and down. You know there's plenty of good to be found there, but you can't see it in your own life. You just can't. And David's at that point. He cannot see any of the blessings of God. He can't see any of the faithfulness of God. But he does manage to see God's faithfulness in others. He says, God, I feel abandoned by you, but, but I do remember that you were faithful to my forefathers. I do remember that they cried out to you, and even though you're not answering me, you answered them. Even though you're not delivering me, you delivered them. I, I remember that. They trusted you, and you came through. I can... I can remember that. May I say that this, I think, is a tribute to the importance of church. This is a tribute to the importance of a faith community, of being together in our walks. We need each other. If we are in our times of lament, if we are alone, we have no perspective, we have no alternate story. We have only the story that we are spinning into an ever-tightening circle of confusion and hopelessness. No one to whom we can point and say, but wait, they still believe? They went through some hard times and and they still believe in God. Maybe, Maybe I have a chance of believing in spite of my abandonment too. That's why we need life groups. Because sooner or later, we're going to take turns on the hot seat. Sooner or later, everyone in that circle is going to be sitting on the seat of abandonment where they feel broken and desolate and derelict and hopeless. And when you are in that circle of friends, there are going to be others to whom you can point and say, but look, they still believe when my my belief is flagging. I think this is particularly, this point is particularly why young people need a church that is filled with more than just other young people. Am I re- you understand what I'm saying, don't you? A 20-year-old hasn't lived long enough to experience God's faithfulness in the ups and the downs of life. So when they hit their first down, they don't have enough lifespan to give them a hopeful perspective. That's why a 20-year-old needs a 60-year-old in his life. Someone who can say to him, I know you're in the pits, son, but it's Okay. You will get through this. We will get through this. And I can say it for sure that God will come through because God came through for me when I was 20 and when I was 30 and when I was 40 and when I was 50. And for those of you who are a little older than me, you would say, and when I was 60 and when I was 70, when I was 80, some of you when I was 90, 100. Maybe we'll stop there. So David gets a glimpse of hope by remembering the faithfulness of God to others. But pretty soon he's back down in the pits. That encouragement doesn't last very long. And so in verse 6, so he went down and up. Verse 6, he heads right back down again. Listen to the words. That I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Honestly, it's, I can't tell whether to be uh, you know, empathetic or to, or to say snap out of it a little bit. I mean, clearly, this guy is so broken and self-pitying that everything is bad. I'm just a worm. Everybody hates me. They make mouths at me. I don't even know what that means. But it sounds mean, doesn't it? You know, they're wagging their heads at me. If he was writing this today, David might say, I'm just a banana slug. I'm a slimy low life, and they want to put salt on me and make me shrivel up. <laughs> I mean, it's pathetic, and it's horrible, but it's what he feels like. This time, though, he starts out of the pits faster. He starts back up. He remembered God's faithfulness to his forefathers, and now he catches a glimpse of the fact that God has been indeed faithful to him, too. Oh, yes. And it starts again with that same wonderful word. What word? Yet. Say it. Yet, he says, yeah, I'm, I'm a worm, I'm a, just a slug. Yet, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. See what I mean? He, in the earlier verses, verse 3 and 4, he primed his memory banks with the help of other people's testimonies. And then suddenly he remembers, wait a second, I've got a testimony. It may not be my testimony right now, but I've got a testimony. I remember a time when God came through for me. I remember a time when it was blessed and good. Yeah, I remember that. When we think that God has abandoned us, the best way to denounce that lie is to look back on the evidence of our own past. Talk to your soul. The Psalms do that a lot. Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me. Forget not all his benefits. We talk to our souls. I talked about this last week. I think it's so important. You take your soul in hand. Listen, soul. You remember God? This, he was faithful here. Do you remember this? And remember this time he was faithful. And remember when your whole life seemed to be falling apart, but God came through there for you as well? I think it's what's going on here. He remembers, first of all, the faithfulness to others. And then he says, by golly, I can remember a time when God was faithful to me, a faithful mother, faithful upbringing. They say that the best predictor of future behavior is past performance. It's true for God, too. God's faithfulness to others and God's faithfulness even to him in his past. It's the best promise that he's not done being faithful even in times of abandonment. Finally, we come to this, and this is a little odd, but I liked it. And so we're going to do it. The third thing I think the psalm teaches us is to remember that God has not yet written the second half of the psalm. God has not yet written the second half of your psalm. We're familiar with the first half, which is called the lament. But there is another half equal sized on the other end of the lament. We know the lament because that's where these miraculous parallels between David's situation and the crucifixion of Jesus are raised up. So that's familiar to us. But did you know that tradition has it that Jesus prayed this psalm on the cross? The whole psalm on the cross. Not just the lament, but the second half as well. And the second half moves from dereliction to celebration. From hopelessness to hope. Let me just give you a couple of lines to give you a taste of the second half of that psalm. Here here he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. We know that Jesus prayed the first half of the lament on the psalm because the words are captured in the gospel. My God, my God, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. He prays in his Aramaic tongue. But I think there's reason to believe that he moved on from the lament of the first half of the psalm to the hopefulness, the celebration, the victory of the second half. A half that reveals a a God who indeed has not abandoned him, even though that's what he's feeling like. Listen, for instance, to verse 24. Here's what he says. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried out. Doesn't that sound different from the first verse? My God, why have you forsaken me? I'm not cry I cry out you don't hear me. My words are bouncing off the heavens. Oh, but he has not hidden his face from me. He has seen my affliction. He has heard my cries. So I believe that Jesus prayed this entire psalm in part because we have that first verse there. Maybe much of it was had to be prayed silently. I mean, he was hanging from the cross. His lungs were collapsing. He was in paralysis. He wouldn't have been able to say anything the longer he hung there. But I do believe that this was the prayer that he clung to as he hung on the cross. And the reason I think that perhaps he made it all the way to the end of the psalm, I found a piece of evidence to suggest that. Would you like me to share it with you? Say yes. We're enthused. We're enthused. It's in the last two verses. Take a look in verse 30 and 31. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Do you see those last four words? I was excited when I discovered this. The version that you have, the ESV version says, he has done it. But in Hebrew, there is no pronoun. The Hebrew translation actually in literally there is no he in it and so do you know what the literal translation of the last four words of the psalm are it is finished ah i heard the ahs it's the same thing i experienced this week we start with the words of christ it is finished what were the last words of jesus on the cross it is finished My work of salvation, he said, my atoning death for the sin of the world, which caused me to become filthy in the eyes of my Father, which caused him to turn his face from me for a time. That work of salvation, it is finished. And so we start with the words of Christ's abandonment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it doesn't end there. It ends with Jesus' cry of victory. It is finished. We get to the second half of the psalm when you feel abandoned by God, when you cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You must remember that the second half of your psalm has not yet been written. That last triumphant part. One day your faithful Christ will turn your present cries of dereliction into shouts of hallelujah. I started my sermon by sharing the story of my friend's lament. Remember the The man who was abandoned as a boy by his father four different times. Who was abandoned by his mother emotionally. Who was abandoned by his mother in death. Who was later abandoned by his wife. And he wrote these words to me as he reflected with me on Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 begins with David feeling abandoned and in the depths of despair. Yet God never left him. He didn't forsake him. And in the end, David's story is one of redemption. In the end, David's story is my story. My wife of eight years loves me. My family loves me. My church loves me. My pastor loves me. And most of all, my God loves me. Second half of the psalm. And indeed it is true. When the devil whispers to you, forsaken. The Holy Spirit shouts out, remember God's faithfulness.